Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are continuing on in the book of Devarim, the book of words, the book of things. In Hebrew, word and thing is not different. It's the same word. So Devar is word and thing. So Devarim, we are in the book of words and things. Um, We are continuing, therefore, in the philosophy and the school of thinking that belongs to the D source, the Deuteronomic source who writes the Deuteronomic history of Israel. So repeating, Deuteronomy is a repeat, which is why it's called Deuteronomy from the Greek, that it is the second telling. So the second telling, what does that mean? It means Moshe, the character Moshe. All of these things are put in his mouth. All these words are put in Moshe's mouth. And the words are a retelling of the history of Israel. That's why it's called Deuteronomy. Um, and so Micha Goodman says it's the last book of the written Torah and the first book of the oral Torah, right? Because whenever you have a retelling, you already have an interpretation. Because what you put in, what you leave out, what you highlight, what you don't, obviously the versions are different, the written version in Exodus and Numbers, and the retelling in Deuteronomy, they are different. Um, and so last book of the written Torah, first book of the oral Torah says Micha Goodman, which is, I think, a lovely point. Um, okay, so the Deuteronomist has an agenda, and that agenda is to reconstruct Israelite cult practice and the philosophy behind the cult practice and behind the cult. So, um, so we're getting both some changes in the cult. Which ones did we discuss? What change did we discuss last week? moving sacrifice from local shrines only to the temple in Jerusalem. So the centralization of sacrifice, meaning really the centralization of ritual, of the cult practice, because it could only happen now with the priesthood in the temple in Jerusalem. So this is a major shift by the Deuteronomist. Thank you, Hannah Bahena. Thank you. Um, and so... Um, why that shift? We talked a little bit about that. One of one of the things the Deuteronomist is trying to do is to crack down on syncretistic worship. So to crack down on people offering in the, let's say, the local shrine in Don in the north, cutting down on them offering something to Yahweh, and at the same time, you know, while we're here, let's offer a little something to Baal. It can't hurt. Let's just cover all our bases. So to stop Israelites from syncretistic worship, to um, reinforce that only yud heh vav can be worshipped in Israel. Um, there's some discussion about whether or not yud heh vav has a consort. Um, Asherah, the goddess, right, the Canaanite goddess, um, becomes Yahweh's consort. So there's still some of that that remains. But in general, trying to put the kibosh on syncretistic worship. Okay, but there are other missions, meaning the worship of Yahweh, but also doing the worship of Baal, the worship of Isis, the worship of Asherah, right, the previous religion that the Israelites came out of, because Israelites were converted Canaanites, so they already had that practice, so now they're doing both. So when you do both, it's syncretistic. So they are, um, so that's one one agenda of the Deuteronomist. The other agenda, one of the other agenda, parts of the agenda of the Deuteronomist, um, is to get at the philosophy of the cult. And by moving all sacrifice to Jerusalem, as you recall, we talked about last week, um, it, it de-sanctifies. I don't think that's a word. It, it's, um, secularizes all the other places. So it secularizes the rest of Israel. It, the rest of Israel cannot be places where now you have right sacrifice. So it it reduces people's access to sacrifice. Why is that part of the Deuteronomist's agenda? Because clearly the Deuteronomist feels that there's too much focus on the ritual of sacrifice. That the sacrifice being efficacious for the the bringer of the sacrifice 
is bothersome to the school of Deuteronomy. What does Deuteronomy want the person focused on? Mm -hmm. On God. And, and, and what does that mean from the person? I could be focused on God and I'm bringing my sacrifice. So what does the Deuteronomist want? Deuteronomist wants me focused on God and not focused on the sacrifice, but on what? On behavior. On behavior. So this is very much in line with the early prophets who are yelling and screaming. We read it every Yom Kippur, right? We read um, the prophet yelling and screaming. Is this what I want? Your sacrifices? No. What I want, says God, is for you to unfetter the chains of the oppressed, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, right? This is very much the school of Deuteronomy. Focus on behavior and ethics rather than the ritual to affect the right relationship between Israel and God. So some of us, yes, see it as a growth step, uh, Mark, and it is definitely the beginning of what it means to live without it, because when the temple's destroyed, we already have a focus on behavior beyond temple ritual. So it, it partially saves the Jewish people and saves Judaism as a as a religion, because it's not only cult dependent. Definitely, this is a revolution in in how people are instructed to think about God, right? Now, whether or not they followed that is a whole nother conversation. But having said that, there there's a lot of us who look for the remnant of the worship of the divine feminine in every religion, including in Islam. Right. So, yes, of course. So is it is the cult of Asherah still active? No, it died out a long time ago. However, we believe there's, you know, rooted in all of our religions, some you know underpinnings of the pagan divine feminine. OK, and maybe Mehmet could say more about where that exists in Islam, but um, um, I'm not sure. But, you know, lo- lots of myths around, you know, the women in the stories of Islam, as we have in the stories of Rachel and Leah and the matriarchs and Sarah, right? The remnants of um, worship of the divine feminine. 100% the Shekhinah is part of that tradition. 100 million percent. The Shekhinah is understood as the indwelling presence of God that dwelt in the temple, that, and so it definitely is feminine. And for the rabbis, very feminine. Like it is the Kadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be he, and God's Shekhinah. And they unite in heaven whenever we unite down here. So it is very personified, very much uh, the Shabbat's queen, the Shabbat bride, all of that is the Shekhinah. The Shekhinah goes into exile with her people. When we're exiled, she weeps for her people. So um, definitely it's kept alive through the, uh, the element of Shekhinah. So we trade and borrow other aspects of different religions always, and so do always. they. Always. Every human culture does. Every human religion does. Yes. We're just honest about it. We're just honest about it. Of course, now it's called cultural appropriation. No, appropriation. there. No, there's a difference, um, and the difference is about 100 years, right? Like, it starts as appropriation, but, I mean, but becomes a real part of religious traditions, you know, so... Did we appropriate the high holidays from the Babylonian pagans? Yes, sort of, but we lived among them. And right, you know, so what's appropriation? What's reconstructing your tradition? What's response to, you know, the influences around you? Um, I think, I mean, it's a good question, George, but I think appropriation is in the eyes of the originators, right? Like, and misappropriate. So like when my colleague in Duluth, my one of my best friend who was a pastor, was very excited to tell me about the Seder she was having at her church. And I was like, wait, what? Right? And they were going to have a Seder. And I was like, uh-uh. Uh-uh. That's appropriation. Right? Jews do Seder. Jews celebrate Passover. Y'all left that tradition. Right? And so um, who who calls it appropriation? Who calls it Going back to our roots, I think, depends on who feels it's being appropriated. But a 100 years from now, Christians might be doing satyrs and nobody will blink, including the Jews. I don't know. Well, that's what they want to claim. Jesus did it, so, but we say, yeah, but y'all left to worship him, not the Jews.
Jewish understanding of relationship to the divine. Rabbi? Yes. Margo, I just wondered, do all traditions of Judaism believe uh, this uh, explanation that you're talking about uh, now? The uh, what, what explanation? other forms of Judaism. Um, no. So orthodoxy, fundamentalist interpreters do not accept it because why, Margot? Why won't they accept that? Um, what do they say? I'm not sure. Now I'm sorry yeah. I asked the question because I can answer it. <laughs> right? That'll teach you. Uh, that'll right. learn you, as my father used to say. So, um, so they believe this is fundamentally the word of God and it's unchanged. But what we're going to do this morning is we're going to watch and get inside of um, what what we've always done, which is try to unpack the original intent of these laws. And they just say it was the divine intent, maybe. Um, but we're going to look at that because um, I know I tease you a lot, Judith Ubik, and I appreciate you too, George, um, that you are able to be so graceful about handling it. But I, I'm serious when I say I hear you that you've wanted to learn some Talmud. And so where it's appropriate, I really am trying to bring forward some Talmud for us. And so we're going to do a little bit of that this morning, just so I can show you that it doesn't start with us going, where do these things come from? Why would they do that? What might be the origination of these rituals? It's not just us. It's our commentators throughout the ages, beginning in the Mishnah, continuing in the Gemara. The Mishnah and the Gemara together make the Talmud. So as early as the Mishnah, as early as the first century, they are asking the same questions we always have. So people want to say, oh, yeah, well, you're moderns looking back. And it's like, no. So we're going to look at one of the pieces of Deuteronomy this morning from our Parsha. And we're going to look at what our commentators from before the medieval period are doing with that text. Okay. All right, so that we can get inside explications that begin long before the modern era where we think we think biblical criticism starts with us. All right, so those of you with a book here, we're going to start at the very end of 20. We're in the last third of every Torah portion. Remember, we're in the triennial. We're in the last third of every Torah portion. And I just, there's a lot of this last third I can't, deal with so and I don't have the kayak to try and reconstruct it so we're not gonna we're gonna go to the end of um 20 so this is I want to show you verse 19 of chapter 20 so when you are going to war against a city and you have to besiege it for a long time in order to take it you must not destroy its trees, wielding the axe against them. You may eat of them, but you must not cut them down. Are trees of the field human to withdraw before you into the besieged city? All right, so this verse of Torah says, when you go to war, the people of a town can run behind the wall of the city you're besieging. The trees can't because they don't have legs right so by definition trees can't run from you and therefore you don't get to uh, to to wantonly destroy fruit trees so there's there fruit trees are not going to hurt you and they can't run away why would you cut them down the only reason to cut them down is to further punish this people of the city, because there's no point in cutting down fruit trees. And Torah forbids the cutting down of fruit trees in war. This pasuk, this uh, sentence from Torah, is used a lot by the environmental movement. So Jews who are involved uh, in very active in environmental circles very well know this verse. Um, so bal tashchit, you shall not essentially waste. Fruit trees take a long time to grow. It takes them three years once they're mature to produce. Um, and in the land of Israel that's dependent on rain, they're, they're very hard to grow. Um, and so you don't get to just wantonly destroy the fruit trees of 
uh, the land of Israel because you're going up against an enemy city. You can eat from them, right? But you can't cut them down. Only trees that you know do not yield food may be destroyed. You may cut them down for constructing siege works against the city that is waging war on you until it has been reduced. So you can use other trees for their wood, um, but you can't do that with fruit trees. Okay. So let's look at 21, this very odd law that's coming up, that's discussed in some detail. Think about for yourselves what details are left out. So we have this law. We have, you know, some of the procedures about it, a little bit confusing in some places, and what's left out. All right. If in the land that your God is assigning you to possess, someone slain is found lying in the open, the identity of the slayer not being known, your elders and magistrates, right? remember this is Parshat Shoftim, all about magistrates, right, and judges. Your elders, your zkenim, and your magistrates, your Shoftim, will go out and measure the distances from the corpse to the nearby towns. The elders of the town nearest to the corpse shall then take a heifer which has never been worked, which has never pulled in a yoke, and the elders of that town <clears throat> shall bring the heifer down to an overflowing vadi, which is not tilled or sown. There in the vadi, they shall break the heifer's neck. Suck it up, Dana. You can do this. The priests of Levi shall come forward, for your God, yud heh has chosen them for divine service and to pronounce blessing in the name of yud heh and every lawsuit and case of assault is subject to their ruling. Then all the elders of the town nearest to the corpse shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the vadi, and they shall make this declaration. Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it done. Absolve, yud your people Israel, whom you redeemed, and do not let guilt for the blood of the innocent Remain among your people, Israel, and they will be absolved of blood guilt. Thus you will remove from your midst guilt for the blood of the innocent, for you will be doing what is right in the eyes of Yudhei Okay, so remember what happens with the land. When you live on the land, the way we behave on the land impacts the land itself. Right? Do we remember this? How you behave ethically and morally affects the land itself. If you shed blood, it um, contaminates the land. The land gets contaminated, and if the land gets too contaminated, what happens? The land gets too contaminated, what happens? It won't bear. It bear fruit. No. We can't live there anymore. Aha. It's Thank toxic. You, Pam. It's a toxic. If the land gets too contaminated, it will spit y'all out. <laughs> You're staying in the land that God is giving you, says Torah, is completely 100% conditional. Unconditional love is not in Torah. Not there. Grace and forgiveness and compassion are all part of God's love for us. Staying in the land is completely conditional. Conditional on how you behave. If you spill blood, it is one of the most direct ways to contaminate the land, the soil. Because it's the worst thing you can do, right, is take someone else's life without justification. There are times... You because can. God realized that land and things around it have their own power. He gave them their own power to make those judgments. So, well, I don't know. I might argue that God is the judge and God will judge if you misbehave too much. God will allow your enemies to destroy you. And I mean, that's pretty straightforward Deuteronomic. Theology. Dana? I, I know we're looking at what was going on then and how everyone was thinking then, but I always see a thread that's still connected to us, you know, and I'm thinking of the Israeli army when they go in. 
God forbid, you know, um, non-guilty civilians are killed or something, you know, there's this edge to their action and their fight. You know, it's really bad to kill people who are not your enemy that are bystanders. It's like, so, but we have to make a distinction when we're talking about what's here and even what's now between war and this is murder. So those are different things. I want to be very clear. War, killing in war and murder are different things. But those soldiers who go in and search and stuff, in the back of their mind, they're, they're training and even in Torah, it's like they can't just go in and kill anybody. Okay. It, no? Okay. So it depends. So if you look at the rest of chapter 20, which I skipped on purpose because I didn't want to go there, um, it talks about it depends. If the city, you offer terms of peace, if they say, okay, you get to take everybody and everything with you. If they say no to a peace offer, you, you, when you take the city, you kill all the men. So it depends when you get to kill everybody and when you don't. You take their wives and children as booty. So, you know what I mean? So, but, so what I hear you, but what I hear you saying is from ancient times in our texts, there is a discussion, at least, of killing that is wrongful, and then what has to happen in response to wrongful death. That's for sure. And we're going to see, it's funny you said it, we're going to see an example in our text in this business from the Israeli army. And how are we treating our earth now? Okay, Judith, we're, we're not going into how no. we're treating our earth now. No, but now. It's, it is relevant. Uh, it, 100%, but like we're not going to go into how we're treating the earth now, but it's definitely, like I said, it's why Jewish environmentalists point to this verse. They say, obviously, we are not living into this, what this verse is saying, what we should be doing. George? This, the, the word collateral damage comes up here. And with the Palestinians, they always have uh, more Palestinians die than Israelis because they don't they they hide their guns within the uh, mosques in schools. So despite an attempt to not have collateral damage, there, there is collateral damage. And of course, the Palestinians make good propaganda because more more of them die than the Israelis. All right, I'm staying away from more conversation about that. <laughs> um, okay, so let's go into um, uh, Egla Arufa. Let's go more into this business. Okay, so let's let's get clear on the case. What's the case? The case is a, a, a corpse is found. Clearly, it's foul play. It's not someone who died of a heart attack. It doesn't say, it was some of the details that are left out. How do they know the person didn't have a stroke? We can assume they understand that this person has been murdered. So they find a corpse of someone who's been murdered, and it's not in a settlement. It's outside a settled area. Who's going to take responsibility for the blood that has been spilled, and how do we expiate the blood that's been spilled into the ground so it doesn't contaminate the ground, right? How do we alleviate the blood guilt? That's the question here, because that's clearly the issue. There's blood guilt, but we don't know which town is responsible. So they measure to the nearest towns, and whichever town is closest, that town has to take responsibility for the corpse and for the murder, So how do they alleviate the blood guilt? They take a heifer that has never pulled in a yoke. They bring her down to a stream. They break her neck. They, and the elders wash their, the priests are there. The elders wash their hands and recite the following are like, we are not responsible for this. We did not see this, right? We're not responsible. And let us be forgiven of the blood guilt. Okay, that's the ritual, and we're going to walk through some exploration of of that. Okay. Yeah, the ritual uh, bothers me, especially <laughs> when uh, the, the uh, it was Deuteronomy says they're against sacrifice. It doesn't say it's against sacrifice. God forbid, George. Well. It, Deuteronomy is not against sacrifice. Well, right, local, uh, I mean, not centralized to sacrifice. 
mm-hmm. but it it also reduces one interpretation is that the centralization reduced sacrifice the reliance of every israelite on sacrifice as the major mitigating factor between right. them and god right but so, if you have this you're in trouble right this is right we we're closing all the emergency clinics but if somebody's leg gets chopped off you're entitled to take them to right avadi and put on a tourniquet right and convene a meeting to figure out what to do right this this is an emergency all right egla arufa this is from the torah.com as you can see on the top of your page it's a great website if you're ever curious about the torah portion and some scholarly articles related to topics you never thought you could be interested in go to the torah.com um, all right, so Egla Arufa, a ritual response to an unsolved murder. All right, so here we get the discussion of this uh, situation. A body is found, then they measure, they take an unyoked heifer. This is the only place we see that requirement that the heifer be unyoked, except for the red heifer. Remember the ashes that purify people from corpse contamination? What do we have here? Oh, right, a corpse, probably not an accident. The red heifers used, the ashes of the red heifers used to to uh, cleanse people from corpse contamination. And this is when a corpse is found and it contaminates the land. You use a heifer who's never pulled in a yoke, probably not an accident. R- correct, this one does not have to be red. The elders break, right, the... Uh, the heifer's neck over an unsown plot of land. Remember, it says it's not been sown or tilled. Priests arrive. So having done this, the Levitical priests come, though the text does not say what role they have other than approaching. Because remember, it's the elders who are going to actually snap its neck and wash their hands. So we're not exactly sure what the priests of Yerhevafe are doing here. The elders make the declaration right? That they wash their hands and they say, our hands did not shed this blood. Our eyes did not see it done. And then they ask for absolution, right? So kaper, we know this word, right? Yom Kippur, kapara. Um, so absolution, expiation is made. And they will be absolved of blood guilt through this. And then we get a summary line, says our uh, biblical uh critical source, thus you will remove from your midst guilt for the blood of the innocent, for you will be doing what is right in the eyes of yod heh Okay, pretty much Deuteronomic language here. All right, now I have to look at what I highlighted. All right, so they do not, that we don't, actually, we're not told. It's not here. We're not told that they do, but we're not told that they don't, right? Okay, so coming down to this um, this next paragraph, second sentence on page two, early rabbinic discussion of the Egla Arufa, our calf, focuses instead on the declaration that it is specifically placed in the mouths of the elders. Our hands did not shed this blood. And the Mishnah, both question, Sifre and the Mishnah, both question this declaration. As early as the Mishnah, the first century, we have questions by our sages on the text of the Bible. They didn't just accept like, oh, this is the fundamental word of God and we just don't ask questions. That is not Jewish. As early as the Mishnah, the first century, we're seeing written down and collected questions about what's going on here. So what does the Mishnah say in Sota? Could it have crossed our minds that the elders of the rabbinical court are murderers? All right, so what's what's the Mishnah asking? You always have to say what what is the what's the Mishnah's problem? What's the Mishnah's problem? The problem is that the elders are saying we didn't do this. So the Mishnah is saying Would it have crossed our minds that the responsible elders of the city would have done this? Meaning the ritual makes no sense. No one would question that the elders didn't do this. So how how is this ritual like, how is it relevant? Like what the heck? That makes no sense. 
the Mishnah, right, then goes on and explain what the elders are really saying in this ritual. It is not the case that he came to us and we dismissed him or that we saw him and let him go. The subject says, our, this is now the person writing the article, bah, he came, right, there, that's part of their, their ritual is he came, right, but we didn't do this. They're not, who's he? So the Mishnah is suggesting here that he is the victim and the elders are declaring he didn't come right to us and we didn't help him. And we didn't see him go, meaning we didn't see him leave unattended. So they're not saying we're absolved because we didn't kill him. What they're saying, says the Mishnah, is we didn't have him come to us and turn him away. That's where we would have been guilty. Someone comes to our town and we don't give them escort to the next town. We are liable, says the Mishnah. All right. The explanation, okay. The explanation attributed to the rabbis of the land of Israel themselves is that the elders declaration refers to the murderer. All right. So it's not the victim, say the sages of the land of Israel. Remember, we have the Babylonian school and the Palestinian school. The Palestinian school says, uh-uh, it's not the victim that's being talked about. It's the murderer. They are affirming that they, the elders, had never apprehended nor even seen the murderer and then subsequently released him or allowed him to escape. It is not the case. So this is coming from the text. It is not uh, from the commentary. It is not the case that he, the murderer, came to us and we dismissed him without execution. Nor did we, acting irregularly judgment of face, see him and let him go. We didn't, had we seen, had we thought that we knew who the murderer was, we would have done a full investigation. And if it was found that indeed that was the murderer, we would have executed him. It's capital punishment, right? That was, when we know that from the Bible, you murder somebody, you get killed. If the investigation finds you guilty. So God forbid we didn't do a full investigation. That's what they're saying. We are, you know, we are not guilty. Okay. The explanation attributed to the rabbis of Babylonia. So that's the Palestinian answer. The Babylonian answer is that the elders are saying that they were not guilty of having neglected the needs of the murder victim. It is not the case that he, the victim, came to us and we let him go without food or that we saw him and let him go without accompaniment as he left our city. This understanding suggests that the ceremony reminds the elders and all Jews that they are responsible for the social welfare of the vulnerable. Whenever poverty causes a person's death, the community bears some of the responsibility. So early on, there's an argument between um, the Palestinian sages and the Babylonian sages about what, what is really going on here with this. One is suggesting that we didn't help the victim enough and we want to say that was not the case. And the other one says we weren't thorough enough. Maybe we weren't thorough enough. You should, you might think we weren't thorough enough about having suspected a murderer and let him go. We would have done a full on investigation and held him accountable. So we want, so we're washing our hands saying we did not do that. All right. Early disagreement about the point of this whole business. But clearly, no matter which interpretation you go with or you say it's a little of both, although they're kind of mutually exclusive if you are translating he as the victim or he as the perpetrator. In either case, what is it definitely saying? That the community is responsible for what happens within it. So you could say, well, it. How do we know what happened in our city? You don't, but you're the closest city. So you're going to take responsibility because somebody has to take responsibility because all y'all ultimately have responsibility for each other. You all have responsibility for what happens. That's exactly right. It was Santa Monica homeless people, not us. Wasn't a Palisades homeless person, right? You know, and Torah's saying, you are responsible for what happens within your city and closest on the outskirts of your city. Um, okay.
What about the ritual? All right, we're jumping down to what about the ritual? You know, I find this stuff incredibly fascinating, so we're going to go here. David P. Wright, professor of Bible at Brandeis University, lists various possible explanations for the killing of the heifer. So, like, why, why is this the ritual? A sacrifice, to your point, George, a symbolic or vicarious execution of the murderer, the representation of the penalty the elders will suffer if their confession of innocence is not true, the means of preventing the animal laden with guilt from returning to the community, meaning kill it. You don't want to lay the guilt on it and then take it back home and eat it. Or a reenactment of the murder, which removes blood pollution from the inhabited to an uninhabited area. So in that sense, he's focusing on the fact that you do this on land that has not been sown or tilled because you want to move the blood guilt off of land that is going to produce. Because if you don't, the land may not produce. And this is an agrarian, much of this stuff comes from an agrarian settled culture, right? So the worst thing that could happen to you is that the land doesn't produce. Because then you starve. Then there's war, right? We know that. We know that populations are displaced whenever there's a scarcity of resources. We're seeing it now all over the world. Okay, um, so rabbinic commentators from medieval through modern times also debated the meaning of the ceremony. him, right? Medieval doctor, right, is going to try to think about, okay, like what is actually going on here? Maimonides doesn't want magic, not interested in magic. He's, he's a neo-Aristotelian. He's a neo-Platonian. He needs God to be the unmoved mover, the unchanged perfect thought thinking itself, Maimonides cannot have magic going on and cannot have doing this affect God somehow because God is the unmoved mover, okay? Think Aristotle. Okay, well, if that's the case, how do you explain this? If you're a Neo-Aristotelian, how do you explain this? Let's drop down to here where my cursor is, if you can, y'all can see that. As a rule, the investigation, the procession of the elders, the measuring and taking of the heifer, Make people talk about it. What's it? The murder. <clears throat> and by making the event public, the murderer may be found out. And he who knows of him or has heard of him or has discovered him by any due will now name the person that is the murderer. And as soon as a man or even a woman <laughs> or a handmaid raises up and names a certain person as having committed the murder, the heifer is not killed. So the heifer's only killed if we don't know who the murderer is. And so Maimonides doesn't have this be God forbid about breaking the heifer's neck to, af to affect some magical, you know, expiation or to influence God, God forbid. Instead, it's to make the thing notable and notarized, not notarized, um, publicized, so that people start talking. They see the procession of elders. They see the procession of priests. This, this calves, calves are not tiny, you know, is marched through the street and is taken to an out of the town to an unsettled air, you know, going down to a vadi. Like people are going to start talking. Uh oh, there must have been a murder. Did y'all see somebody walking around last night? <laughs> right? Um, and once word spreads, we're going to see how that might impact the case. Um, force is added to the law by the rule that the place in which the neck of the heifer is broken should never be cultivated or sown. The owner of the land will therefore use all means in his power to search and to find the murderer in order that the heifer not be killed and his land be made useless. So Maimonides is saying, don't read Deuteronomy's law as saying, take it to a place that's never been tilled. He's reading the rule of Deuteronomy as saying, the place that this is going to happen can never be tilled or sown. And nobody's going to want that to happen to their plot of land that could be used for a crop. So everyone's going to scurry to try and figure out who committed the murder so that, um, yeah, I saw, you know, 
I saw Sam Goldberg leaving his house last night at about two in the morning because I was up getting, you know, milk and a sandwich and I saw him sneaking around. Okay. Right. So everybody will try hard to solve it so that, or the, you know, people who would use that land will try hard to solve it so that it doesn't get killed on their land. Judah? Two things. Mm-hmm. The rum, the rum bomb is Maimonides. Yes. Why is he called Rambam? What does that mean? Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon. Oh, okay. All of our sages, all of those Rashi, Rabbi Shimon Yitzchak ben Yitzchak. So they're, uh, what do you call that in English? They're, it's a nickname. It's a, no, what do you, what is it when you use the, the first letter of stuff? It's an acronym. It's an acronym for their name. And the other thing is, it's interesting that they mention women in this passage because it's ordinarily women in any community who talk to each other at the market and when they're with their kids. And the women might have more information, actually, than the men. So it seems this situation is so distressing that even women are to be believed if they have something to say about who it might have been. Even women. They do not get into that. No, women cannot serve as witnesses. No, they cannot serve as witnesses. Two doesn't matter. They can't serve as witnesses. The only legal thing about two is when you have when they're going to testify in court, and women cannot testify in court. So it doesn't matter. They can spread rumors, sure. They can say, I saw something, but they can't testify to that in court. No, only if the person is apprehended and punished. But if she says, I saw him and... I saw him go up into the woods over there and they go in the woods and find him and kill him. Then the heifer's not killed. They should listen to what she's saying is what this is saying. Even to a woman, you should listen. Right. Okay. So which one? Right. Right. So it's making it a big deal in the community. In this case, it's good that people are talking about it because that's how you might actually figure out who did it. All right. God commanded all this be done, this is Maimonides, so that the murder victim, quote, has a voice. Like, and all I kept thinking when I was reading this was George Floyd, right? That's all I could think about was, you're you're on my neck, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And then he's dead. And Rambam is saying, this whole business is about not forgetting I can't breathe, right? That you're giving the victim who's now silenced a voice by making this the talk of the town, literally. Making it the talk of the town allows the victim to talk, allows the victim to speak. If someone had gone on a journey and did not return and no one knows his fate, his household and his relatives might come because of the publicity And they can see if they recognize the person who died. Thus, his wife will not be an aguna and will be allowed to remarry. All right. So what is this saying? That this is what's what's the worst thing that can happen to a family? Is it somebody goes on a journey and in the ancient world, it was very dangerous. It remains dangerous. Torah is saying y'all are responsible while someone's traveling in your territories. You're responsible for their safety. So make sure you're not building dangerous communities. But it was very dangerous. So, so what's the worst thing that can happen even today? Someone leaves and doesn't come home. Are they dead? Have they been kidnapped? Are they being tortured? Are they in someone's basement? Did they leave me because they don't love me anymore? Right? We don't know often until you have a body. You don't know what's happened, right? Until you have a corpse. So because word gets out about this, because it's this whole big parade and everything else, then maybe the family will hear of the person who disappeared and will come to be part of all the proceedings to see if it's them. And if they see it's them, then the widow will not be stuck in this um, limbo of Aguna. Remember, if there's no body, she's not allowed to remarry. If he just runs off, she's stuck for the rest of her life, married to him. So Rambam is saying this is this is a ritual and law of compassion for women so that if the corpse is identified, his widow is not stuck as an aguna and his family has some closure around uh, knowing that he's in fact dead. He also notes the importance of ensuring that the victim's family knows what happened to their loved one, right? So that that's the piece I just said. Okay. Now, 
Shadal goes in a different direction. And Shadal argues against Maimonides and says, as a result of their belief that the land would be cursed because of unavenged spilled blood, it was necessary to take steps to avert the possibility that they would be tempted to kill an innocent person who was suspected of the murder, even without clear evidence and certain testimony. (coughs) In the current case where the murder victim was found, they might have mistakenly thought that the entire people would be punished if their efforts did not turn up the murderer. So what is Shadal saying? Shadal says, this is no, this is not about being certain about who's dead and giving the family comfort and giving the wife freedom. No, Maimonides, not at all. This is about stopping people from vigilantism, right? That if you're really afraid that blood guilt is going to remain in the land, you might be tempted to take a suspect and execute them saying, ah, we got the murderer right? Just to make sure that there's not blood guilt on your turf. So Shadal is saying this ritual is to prevent that. This ritual is to prevent vigilantism, giving the nearest town a way out of the blood guilt situation. Shadal is concerned with (laughs) combating vigilantism. Um, Thus, the ceremony's goal is to stop people from feeling that in order to keep the land from being polluted, following an unsolved murder, they have to find and punish somebody without solid evidence. Shadal totally rejects the claim of Maimonides that the ceremony's benefit is that it may lead to the execution of a murderer despite the lack of incontrovertible evidence. Huh? He does indirectly by saying it has nothing to do with finding out who's dead. It's about stopping people from killing an innocent person to alleviate the blood guilt of the land. No, with the Aguna, the Aguna is dependent on knowing who the dead person is, so she's released. Shadal is just not talking, is saying that it's not about the dead person. That's not what this whole thing is for. This whole thing is for the prevention of vigilantism and killing, executing somebody who's not, you don't have enough evidence to be sure they're guilty because it's a rush to judgment, right? To alleviate the blood guilt. Okay. Now we go to Ramban, who is a Kabbalist. So Ramban completely usually refutes Maimonides' approach because Maimonides is a physician and a Neo-Aristotelian. Ramban is a mystic. So Ramban is going to have a completely different interpretation of this, right? In my opinion, lefi da'ati, yesh ta'am ke'inyana korbanot. What does he say? In my opinion, the explanation is like that of other sacrifices that are offered outside of the temple, the goat that is released, and the red heifer. So there were some things that remained sort of semi-sacrifices that happened outside of the Jerusalem temple, to your point, George. Um, And that was the goat that goes to Azazel. Remember the Yom Kippur service of the high priest sending one goat to Azazel? Um, And the red heifer is another one that is not done in the, necessarily, I guess, in the temple. I thought it was, but whatever. Um, All right, so Ramban, who is deeply immersed in the world of Jewish mysticism, has little use for any of the rational explanations of the Egla Arufa. He prefers to understand the the Egla Arufa the way we may understand the goat that is released to Azazel on Yom Kippur and the red heifer, namely as a very unusual sacrifice that is meant to accomplish a specific Kabbalistic purpose and it's not given here, right? He's like, it just simply atones. It's mystical. We don't understand why, but God does. And so all we need to do is do what we're told. And somehow God in God's mystical reality makes it so that it wipes the blood guilt away. We don't have to understand how. Why would you purify people of corpse contamination with the ashes of a dead animal? Doesn't make any rational sense. For Ramban, it's like, doesn't have to be rational. It's mystical. We don't understand. We limited human beings cannot understand how these things work in the realm of, right, the great mystery, capital M. So he doesn't, 
He doesn't try to explain how it works. It's just like the red heifer. Because God said so. Because God understands how all of this works. All right, so let's go to Jacob Milgram. So this is a modern uh, interpretation, which, you know, is always exciting to me because it's from an anthropological standpoint. The key to this right, he says, uh, page seven, is its underlying postulate that the blood of the innocent pollutes the earth on which it is shed. And he references the book of Numbers. The earth, having received the blood involuntarily, withholds its strength, quoting Genesis, bringing drought and famine upon its inhabitants. He's quoting Samuel and Ezekiel. This belief is not peculiar to Israel. So for Milgram, he's going to suggest this predates Israel, Israelite law, but is part of its heritage from the cultures among the the Mediterranean. Egla Arufa is the cultic prophylactic to avert this contingency. Its purpose is to transfer the land polluted by the corpse to an uncultivated plot removed from the settled area. According to this interpretation, the Torah has incorporated an ancient rite, he wants to suggest. The ritual. The ritual was placed in the hands of the priests, those chosen by Yudhe to serve him and removed from the authority of the lay leaders who might be addicted to its pagan origins. Then the declaration was given an appendix, meaning there was something added, whereby the automatic magical expiation presumed by the ritual was abolished and the expiation and indeed all forgiveness of sin um, attributed solely to Yudhe So what is he suggesting? There's an ancient pagan rite where the elders doing this ritual that's all that happened. The elders did the breaking, the washing, the declarating, the, the, what, the declaration, and you're done. Milgram suggests that would have, that would have not made the Deuteronomist happy because possibly they understand it's pagan rituals and it's too much like magic, right? Apotropaic magic. And that won't work on Yudhe the God of justice, the God of mercy, the God of compassion, the God of retribution, the God of holding us responsible. That's not going to work, right, for the Deuteronomist. So the Deuteronomist adds, says Milgram, this business of the priests, so that it's very clear that it's the priests of Yudhe who make this efficacious, and they, that thing tagged at the end says they ask Yudhe for forgiveness, meaning Yudhe is the grantor of uh, kapara, not the breaking of the neck at the water. Does that make sense? So taking the focus off the pagan origins of the ritual and making sure you've got the priests of Yudhe and asking Yudhe for forgiveness, reminding them only God can grant that. Magic acts are not going to protect you. Only God can, right? Okay. According to the Mishnah, the ceremony was abolished in the first century CE. The official reason given in the Mishnah is that there were too many murders in the land, right? The same Mishnah says that the ceremony of the Sota, the suspected adulteress, was similarly abolished because why? There was too much adultery in the land. Everybody would be drinking pieces of paper and a glass of water all the time. The priest would never be able to sleep because there would be a suspected adulteress being brought to his door 24-7. So let's just get rid of it because it's just too crazy making. There's too much. Okay. In a sense, the Mishnah concluded that these ceremonies served no real function in the world of rabbinic Judaism. Okay. So, uh, nevertheless, I like this part. The idea behind the ceremony still lives on in Jewish thinking. Dana, fine. To your point, after the massacre in the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps in Lebanon in 1982, perpetrated by Christian phalangist troops who were allies of the IDF, of the Israeli Defense Forces, the Israeli government set up the Kahan Commission of Inquiry, the report concluded that while Israel did not bear direct blame for the massacre, under the principle of the Egla Arufa, they shared in responsibility. 
and in a wide range of social issues, from problems of traffic accidents to children alienated from their communities to overdosing on drugs to the need for improved emergency services, Jewish groups continue today to cite the Egla Arufa as a message to us that we are all responsible for each other. Amy. Yes. I have to go and work with a patient, but I wanted to congratulate the young lady. I don't remember which one it was. who said about how in Deuteronomy they mention a woman in in the text and how women, she said, made a point of how women go to the market or whatever and talk to each other more so than men. And maybe they have information. Just as a side note, there was one person who witnessed, um, who had information or witnessed part of my dad's uh, murder. murder, and she was dismissed as quickly as she spoke to the police to the point that she was not even written up in the police report. So that so makes credence to what this nice young lady um, on your end said, because, yes, she may have offered a lot more information, but because she was a woman, she was dismissed right. and lost forever. And uh, so, her- so Torah here and our commentators are suggesting that this is all built so that that doesn't happen. Right. That was one of the arguments of one of our commentators early on. The whole point of this is to get people talking so that somebody will come forward with a piece of information that might be useful or helpful in catching the killer. Um, and in that sense, um, everybody is to be listened to. Everybody is to be uh, taken seriously who has uh, something to say about this. OK, so. Oh, my goodness. Who's in all caps? Oh, Charles, of course. Um, okay, so um, what I did was just walk you all through what's called Parshanut. So we talk about the Parsha. In rabbinical school, we study Parshanut. We study how the commentators over the centuries have broken down the, something just like this. <coughs> one little piece of Torah, one law. What is the parshanut on that law? You just got exposed to parshanut. Rambam says this. Nachmanides says that. You know, um, Bechor Shor says this. Shadal says that. So that you get way more than just an understanding of, okay, this is what Torah says. You get way more insight into why Torah might have brought that. What are the origins of this? What What are the ways this might have been at work in the community to increase a sense of justice and increase a sense of responsibility for one another, if that's what you're arguing for. And that there's arguments among the darshanim, the the explicators of Torah. It's our tradition. It's been always. It's not just a modern thing. This is how we have always approached Torah. And so what you just got exposed to were our traditional, these are our traditional commentators arguing against each other about what the point of this is. That, for us, is much of the beauty of what it means to engage the Torah study, right? Is arguing, you know, like, okay, what, and what, and then ultimately, what does it mean for us? Because ultimately, that's what they're getting at. What does God want from us? What's the real point of this ritual? Some of them are arguing so that you make sure you take responsibility for each other. Others are arguing so that you make sure vigilantism doesn't take over, right? Some are arguing, right? So all of it is about what does it mean to us? What are we really supposed to take from this ritual? Because otherwise they would just go, nah, we don't know. But that's not what they do. They argue the agenda here because they think it's God's agenda. And if it's God's agenda, we need to take it seriously. But we also get to argue about what God's agenda is for us. And that's our obligation. That is our obligation in engaging with these words and with these ideas is for us to figure out and what does that mean? What does that call us to um, today? 
You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.